Well, like Matt said earlier, we're certainly thankful to our veterans, and we wouldn't have this freedom that we enjoy to be able to worship the Lord if it weren't for what they do constantly. And I know that and our, our country has come a long way even in my lifetime. So I was born in the 60s, and when I was a, a young guy, that was the time when the Vietnam vets were coming back. And our country didn't always put its best foot forward, did it, back then. And uh, in my lifetime, we've corrected that, and I'm very thankful for that. So, so that's a great thing. And um, the, the mention earlier also of just, you know, having a simple point of solidarity with those who have suffered um, in Texas. You know, there are brothers and sisters, too. You just haven't met them yet. And uh, let's, just show, let's just show them that there are people that they've never met and may never meet this side of heaven um, that care. And so... Uh, I think that'll be a great gesture. So do that on your way out if you haven't had the chance. Um, we are in the book of Revelation, and we are in chapter number three. So you can take your Bibles, and you can get ready in Revelation chapter number three. You know, it is said that power corrupts. You've heard that. And then they continue it further and say absolute power corrupts absolutely. And really what that comes from is the idea that we're all sinful. The Bible calls that the flesh. And when fleshly human beings have some level of power over others, it's a, it's a slippery slope. And what happens is, is that we understand the only time, by the way, this is always the problem in human governments, regardless of the type or form of government. You can have your favorite, but all human governments have this challenge where there is a level of power and authority, and you have to be careful. The only time we're going to have righteous rule, right, is when we have a righteous ruler, and that's only the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're studying the lead-up of the days through the history of the church, until the time that he does return, until the time that he is going to rule righteously eventually for a thousand years on this planet and then into eternity. We're studying the history of the New Testament church as it's revealed to us in the book of Revelation in the first three chapters. And so we're seeing what happened in history from the time of the apostles, because the Bible talks about the apostles and the acts of the apostles, and then it doesn't really have anything to say, so we might think, about the last 2,000 years of history, but the Bible's the book of life, and it always has something to say. And so what we have been calling this series is the prophecy of history. Because when Revelation chapters 2 and 3 were written, they were written prophetically to point forward over the entire span of church, the church age until the rapture of the church, which we see pictured for us with John being called up into heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1. But for us now in 2017, most all of it is past, so it's history. And like any passage of Scripture, good students of the Bible know there are three applications. There's a historical application that these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were literal churches in Asia Minor, in the region of land that is now called Turkey. They existed in 90 AD when John penned this book. There's an inspirational application for all of us because at any given time in history, 
our life, our church, people we know, churches go through different issues and struggles in their existence that would match any one or numbers of these churches that existed. And so as they struggled, we can take solace, we can learn what the Lord would have for us. But doctrinally, the teaching of the passage doctrinally that is prophetic points forward to seven distinct church ages or or periods of time within the church age that lay out for us some rough brackets of time. So we started with Ephesus, and it was the purposed church, and then we saw Smyrna, which was the persecuted church, which uh, led up until about, you know, 300, 325 A.D. Pergamus, we called the promiscuous church, where the church marries the world, that led up until about 500 A.D. Last week, we looked at Thyatira and the entering into the Dark Ages, or sometimes called the Middle Ages. We called that the political church. So Sardis today is the fifth church, and we have to call it something with a P. I mean, it's, it's part of my job. So the word we're using is potentate. Potentate, there's a word you ought to just throw out in conversation. So, according to Webster, potentate is a person who possesses great power as a sovereign, monarch, or ruler. And that's what we're going to see in the Sardis church. Because at this time in history, we see that the office of the Pope has so elevated that he begins to exercise his power as sovereign at levels never before seen. I mean, we could call the Sardis church the papal church, but I think potentate is better because it describes really what's going on in the world at that time, yes, the popes had an important role in seeing that that happened. You know, the position of the pope, he's frequently referred to as the pontiff, and his office as the pontificate. The pontificate is his office, his duty. The idea is, is that he still wields a good amount of power from his chair called the throne in Rome. This is the second half of the Dark Ages. We're going to take this time from about 1,000 to 1,500 in church history. This is a time when the state church, the official state church, has such power, and they are motivated to constantly go out and conquer more and more, while at the same time they're tolerating dissension less and less. And so it becomes a very violent time, as we will see, not unlike Smyrna, but it has a different face this time. This is the political sprawl of Rome. And they were constantly fighting. They were constantly at wars. And the wars that they were fighting were either to keep power over their territories or to gain more power over new territories and new nations. But as history kept marching forward, and let me say, thankfully, this is the last church that we'll look at in this series up until now, This is the last church we'll look at with a whole bunch of negative stuff. I mean, you know, come back next week as we begin to see the church of Jesus Christ have some amazing victories in the time of Philadelphia. But to be faithful, we're going to walk through this because there was something brewing in the hearts and minds of people because ultimately people can tolerate 
a ruler over them, especially an oppressive ruler, only for a time. Then they begin to rebel. They begin to dissent. And so at this point, there was this idea of dissension, and the nations were not always cooperative with the church. And the popes slowly were losing their influence. So the real issue of this time, in my opinion, is the issue of power. It's more than just the title of the pope. And here's something that they forgot, and here's something that we should not forget. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. It says, That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed, and here's the key word, only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. You see, human rulers, if they are going to do a fair and decent job of serving the people as a leader, have to have the understanding that there really is one and only one true potentate, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to rule in the fear of God. Well, that's not what was happening at this time of history. So with that in mind, let's look at the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. I'll read them, please follow along, and then we'll start our study. Revelation 3, 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray that the Lord will say what he needs to say, and we will hear what he wants to, for us to hear from him. And Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we are humbled, as always, to be reminded of the life that so many of our brothers and sisters that have long passed and are now in your presence have had to endure here on this earth. And Lord, on the front end, I guess we say thank you that we haven't had to endure that. But on the other hand, maybe we need to look in the mirror of your word and see ourselves, and that's my prayer for us today, that even in our lives, even in the time in which we live, even with the circumstances that we live under, which are very different, we might learn from history and not repeat the mistakes, that we might see ourselves and not fall prey to the things that plague us, and that we might please you unto all pleasing, because you are worthy. Lord, be the sovereign, be the ruler, be the potentate in our hearts and minds today, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we have a standard outline that we're following, and if you've been with us, you know that, so there's no surprises in the points in your outline. The first one is the calling of the church, and the church is called Sardis. That's the name of the church. If we were to um, define that for you and tell you literally what that name means, it literally means red ones, red, red ones. And like I said, the time frame is from about 1000 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. These are bracketed rough times. The church age before the time period before it in Thyatira doesn't st stop at one night at midnight and at one minute after midnight, the next one starts. But let me give you the brackets and why we kind of bracket them at this point. What was going on in history that causes us to bracket the time of Sardis from around 1,000 to about 1,500? Well, about 1,000, there was a significant thing that happened, and this is in your notes. It's the time of the official split of the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. So in other words, the greater Roman Empire, as it changed its face of its garment from just political and pagan to be papal and religious, it had an eastern branch, which was then frequently referred to as the Byzantine Empire, which had its capital in Constantinople, present-day Istanbul in Turkey, and the western branch, which has always had, uh, for the most part, its, uh, its main seat in Rome, which, which covered most of the western European nations. And there was an official split actually about 50 years after 1000. 1054 typically is given the date of the official split of the church. And, and, and know this, that the split between the eastern branch and the western branch of this political church was not so much over doctrine. They have a few doctrinal differences. And if you know anybody in the orthodox branch of the church, uh, they might argue more fervently that they have quite significant uh, differences. If, when you go to celebrate Easter, if you look it up, there'll be a Catholic date for Easter and an Orthodox date for Easter. Uh, the Orthodox priests are allowed to marry and the Catholic priests are not allowed to marry. I mean, there's some, some minor differences in doctrine, but the split really wasn't primarily doctrinal. The split was primarily political. It was about who's in charge. It's always about who's in charge. And so there was a split. And about 1500, and we're going to see the events leading up to this, but leading into the next period of Philadelphia, it's the entrance into what we know well now as the Reformation. And so that will be reserved for next week. But from the time of the split of the Roman church until about the end of their real control where it enters into the Reformation, uh, which typically was marked with Martin Luther at 1517, um, although there were some steps before that. Those are good brackets. Those are brackets for Sardis. Now, I tried to look and find what the secular city, historical city of Sardis had going on so that we might be able to learn something from that city, literally, that might apply to what we're doing today. And, and quite frankly, I didn't really find any significant characteristics except for the fact that the city of Sardis in Asia Minor was conquered a lot. It turned over hands of people who ran it a lot throughout its history. And for all I know, that may be the connection to the prophecy of the Sardis age. In other words, it was marked by true bloodshed. Red. Red like blood flowing in the streets. And what we see if we took the time, and I know that several weeks ago we talked about Smyrna, and we took time to give you descriptions of people who were butchered by pagan Rome. And we're not going to do that today with papal Rome, but I'm telling you at this time in history, far more people, greater numbers of people are killed 
during this reign than even during Smyrna. So we're going to look at some breakdown of these things. It be- the beginning of Sardis is marked by the Crusades. Now many of you may have remembered hearing about the Crusades. The Crusades are many. Uh, some people number them at seven. Some people number them at more than seven. There were many Crusades. And the Crusades had three key objectives. They, they started in the 11th century. So roughly maybe around 1090. Again, people mark it slightly different. But the beginning of this Sardis age is really marked by this event that had three key objectives, and we're going to look at those. The first key objective of the Crusades was to recover Jerusalem. To recover Jerusalem. So what the Catholic Church did is they organized waves of troops from these Roman Catholic-controlled countries in Western Europe to march towards the Holy Land and to take possession of the Holy Land from Islamic rule. Because at this time in history, we have the Islamic nations that, for the most part, are are living in the Palestinian area, and they are inhabiting the city of Jerusalem. And so from the 11th to the 14th centuries, there were a lot of crusades. And the first four crusades, and I'm not taking the time, you go and look them up if you're interested, that's very interesting history. The first four crusades, they kind of went back and forth, whether the quote-unquote Christian forces would come in and win and take control of Jerusalem, or whether the Islamic forces would then come back with another battle and they would win and take control of Jerusalem. And so the control of Jerusalem kind of flip-flopped a little bit back and forth for a while. And you would say, well, why do they bother? What is that all about? Well, you have to understand that Jerusalem, as a physical city on this planet, is literally the capital of the universe. I mean, it is the city, right, where Jesus Christ is going to return, and he is going to rule and reign the entire planet from Jerusalem. And the devil knows it. And the devil wants to counterfeit everything that the Lord does, so the devil wants to take his place, and ultimately in the tribulation will take his place and sit down on a throne in the temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem at some point yet future. Because he wants to fool the world into thinking he is Jesus Christ. And so the the vehicle that he uses in his counterfeit church throughout these Middle Ages He has to go after the the crown prize, and that is Jerusalem. And so the devil is all about it. So one of the key objectives of the Crusades was to recover Jerusalem. But it wasn't just that. Because again, sinful man, power corrupts. They had another key objective, and that was number two, to reunite the empire. You see, the eastern branch split off. There was this schism among people who virtually believed the same things for different political reasons. And so with the eastern branch divided from the western branch, and the Byzantine Empire, quite frankly, was ever losing ground to the Turks. So Rome steps in thinking they could maybe save the day, and that they could bring in the troops, and they could bring the orthodox branch back into the fold. But ultimately they failed. And Constantinople falls into the hands of the Turks. So that was another key objective. And there's another key objective. And this is the one that I really want you to get because it wasn't just Jerusalem and it wasn't just the eastern branch of the Roman church. The third key objective was to remove the heretics. 
to remove the heretics. You see, at this time, anybody who didn't agree with the doctrine of the state church was labeled a heretic. Read you and me. <laughs> anybody who didn't agree with what they said was labeled a heretic, and therefore they created laws to actually go after and punish them. So there were other crusades. The crusades were not solely marches toward Jerusalem. There was a crusade, for example, called the Albigensian Crusade, which was in France, and it had nothing at all to do with Jerusalem. The crusade of the Albigensians was literally to root out all of the heretical sects, some of them called Catheri. We've heard of them before. The Albigensians were another sect of what we would call Bible-believing people who maybe nobody's ever heard much of who lived in those regions. And the church said, look, we've got to root them out. We've got to get rid of them. And so they went in with a crusade, a, a militant crusade, to remove these heretics. So when you hear crusades, just think wars, sanctioned by Rome for various reasons, and all under the banner of the mother church. All wars are dictated with some religious influence pushing it. Don't kid yourself. So the Crusades end around 1300, and these wars, by the way, included terrible, terrible behavior of rape and pillaging all along the journey as these men would march. And there was one crusade that was called the Children's Crusade, where literally they gathered up children to go and send them into battle and there was just awful terrible bloodshed tens of thousands of people are slaughtered not just christians certainly jews moors in other words islamists and ultimately the europeans were defeated certainly in the middle east in jerusalem and israel they they were defeated the leader of the islamic troops a guy named saladin saladin was the guy who ultimately rallied their troops and he defeats the Romans and takes possession of Jerusalem and even to, had the strength to the point that while some of you know a little bit about a history from the eastern part of the world, the Mongols under the rule of Genghis Khan, their ever-expanding empire, an amazing ever-expanding empire, was working its way westward to come over towards Israel and ultimately Saladin was able to even hold off Genghis Khan. Unbelievable strength in uh, these Islamic nations as they actually were able to hold the land that they held. But I want you to understand something. The Crusades were sanctioned by the church, the church-state system, with three key objectives. Recover Jerusalem, reunite the empire, and remove the heretics. They failed on all three counts. They failed on all three counts. But I want you to realize that yet still, the Roman Empire, under the guise of the church, even with all of these failures, increased in wealth and increased in power, and the position of the Pope was elevated. They might say it was a victory. They might say it was a success. Even though they failed in the objectives, unless you think about what the real objective was, and that is to be the potentate, to have the power and to rule as sovereign, Overall, yes, there were those that were dissenting, but yet even in Europe, boy, the strength that they held continued to grow. 
So that's kind of how it got started in Sardis, and Sardis kind of ends now, and we're still just talking about the time of Sardis, uh, this letter B in your notes, with the Inquisition. The Inquisition. Uh, typically when we talk about the Inquisition, maybe the most famous of all is, is the Spanish Inquisition. And this happened around 1478, so this will be about the end of the Sardis period. And the Inquisition is literally a kangaroo court. Uh, this is a time when the church would basically accuse anybody that they suspected as a dissenter. And although the Inquisition truly, as always, was primarily political and had to do with keeping their power, they did set out to drive out all heretics. So in Spain, for example, there was a population of Jews. There was a population of these Islamic nations that were making their way around from North Africa to come up through Spain to continue to invade into the European continents. And so they fought and they went after these people to drive them out. Okay, And so this was, a, this was a goal, to seek out anybody who would not agree with the church, similar to the Albigensian crusade. But this is a court system. This is where we're going to accuse you, and we're going to put you on some sort of a trial. And, and you need to understand something, because at this time, Rome is... Now, reference Revelation 17, 5 and 6. Because Revelation 17, 5 and 6 is a prophecy. It is still yet future. It is during the tribulation time. It is at a time that we are going to see the Antichrist in full bloom operating with a religious force that is called Babylon, mystery religion. But I want you to notice in Revelation 17, 5 and 6 that it says that this woman, right, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, She's drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. And John said when he saw that, he marveled, he wondered, he couldn't believe his eyes. My goodness, you're telling me. He's, imagine John from 90 AD getting the prophecy and seeing those who name the name of Jesus Christ being the very one who are drunken with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. Well, this is who she is, and the Inquisition is a forerunner. It is a picture. It is a, it is a snapshot of what is yet to come. There's ever-sprawling political rule, and there's an ever-lack of tolerance. It's at this time that we're introduced to a guy you might have heard of called Tomas de Torquemada. You ever heard of Torquemada? He was a Dominican friar. Okay, so he was a part of the Catholic Church-State system. And he was considered the first grand inquisitor. They would set a man over the inquisition trials, and he was famous for perfecting and using various methods of torture. So when you think of Torquemada, you think of torture. And so one of the ways that he would use was a method of hanging, where they would tie the wrists together behind the back, and they would suspend you from the ceiling with your wrists tied, suspended from the ceiling, putting the pressure on your shoulders. They would then tie weights around your ankles to stretch you, and they would raise and drop you and raise and drop you until your joints become dislocated. They would do a form of what we call waterboarding. Uh, they would lay people down, and they would shove a rag in their mouth, and they would continue to pour water into the rag, and doing so, they would give the impression of drowning. 
uh, they, they were famous for using what is called the rack. And the rack is, is a device where you were stretched out on the rack, your ankles were tied, your hands were tied, and then they would ratchet tighter and tighter until things began to snap, things began to release. And all of this was going on with snapping of ligaments and joints and bones and cartilage with the Grand Inquisitor or his henchman standing over you basically saying, convert to Catholicism or else. Recant your faith in Jesus Christ or else. You see, this is the darkness of Satan. This is the darkness of Sardis. The church called Sardis, which means red, red ones. Well, similarly, Jesus Christ is introduced in a unique way. He's characterized. It says, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So let's do some Bible study. Let's do some cross-referencing. I mean, we have to show ourselves approved, right? So the seven stars or the seven spirits, we'll start with that. And we'll do some cross-referencing. It shows up in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 5, the seven spirits. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. See, Bible study is not hard. The Bible defines itself. So there are these lamps that are burning, which are the seven spirits of God. So lamps, not unlike what were called candlesticks in chapter number one. They're the churches. Lamps give light. Lamps reveal things. Next reference, Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 6. And I behold, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Simple Bible study, there it is. Sent forth into all the earth. So the seven spirits of God are likened unto seven lamps. The seven spirits of God are likened unto seven eyes. So the seven lamps reveal all. The seven eyes, they see all. And if you really want to define what those seven spirits are, you're going to go to Isaiah chapter 11, where he lists these seven spirits of God. And it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit, spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There's seven of them. And if you were to break them down, you would say that the Lord and wisdom and understanding sees all. And you would say counsel and might and knowledge reveals all. Well, that's six of them. Which one's left? The only one that's left is the fear of the Lord. Because that's all that's left for you. That, that's all you need to do in response to all the things that we concern ourselves with. Especially for them at this time of history, right? So the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28 become very applicable to them at this time as well where he says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus Christ is presented, he that hath the seven spirits. He's also presented as the one that has the seven stars. Now, the seven stars are clearly defined. We've already seen that in Revelation 1.20 as the angels of the churches, the servants, the messengers of the churches. But I want you to notice, because he's presented this way very simply, these things saith he that hath 
the seven spirits and the seven stars. This is, this is Jesus Christ who has the churches and their servants securely in his right hand. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16 where he talks about those seven stars. They were in his right hand. And so in John chapter 10 verse 28, Jesus says, And I give unto them, my children, eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. How is Jesus Christ presenting himself to the church in Sardis that is going through these terrible things they're going through? He's like, look, I am the one that has you. I have the seven spirits and I have the seven stars. You are secure no matter what is going on around you. Or in other words, at a time when all visible power is corrupted by a system that claims to represent God and they are murdering and pronouncing curses over heretics, Jesus reassures them, I got this. I got this. That's his introduction. That's what he wants the saints at Sardis to know. That's what he tells the church in Sardis. This is who I am. I have these things securely in my hand. I know it doesn't seem like it. I know it doesn't look like it. I know you don't understand what's going on. I know it's difficult. I got this. You know what, church? That's a good reminder for us, isn't it? We don't, we're not going through what they went through. But we go through stuff. And the stuff we go through is not, it's not trite. It's not trivial. It's not unimportant. It's very important. Whatever it is you're going through, can I just tell you? Trust him. He's got this, man. You ever think about the perfection of God? It doesn't matter what terrible thing you do. Your terrible thing doesn't make God any less perfect. He's perfect. Oh, by the way, the wonderful things that you do in sacrificial service to him doesn't make him any better either. He's already perfect. He's got this. And everything that is happening is happening exactly on time. For you, it's late. <laughs> For you, you wish it was sooner. No, he's got this. Well, the church has a condition, and that's what we need to look at. He says to each of the churches, I know thy works, and then he begins to describe them. In this case, he says that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. I personally think that frequently this piece of Scripture, this, this middle part, especially of the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, as it's revealed in Revelation 2 and 3, is wrongly taught to be addressed to the counterfeit church. Jesus is not writing a letter to the devil's spiritual children. Jesus is writing a letter to his children who are stuck in a system that is counterfeit. And that's an important distinction because we need to understand when he says, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. He's not writing this letter to the Pope. He's writing this letter to true believers. That's the audience 
who have found some way to survive within the Roman system. And if that's the case, and it is, then the church's condition is, is that it's a church full of compromises. It's a church full of compromises. Because these guys, they had to compromise somewhere, somehow, something to survive. And you might say, well, I don't blame them. Well, you might not. And I don't know that I would either. And I can't promise you what I would have done if I was there. I can only say what I hope I would have done. I haven't been tested to that level. I hope I never am. I don't know. I just know this. They have a name that they live. So they believe in general fundamental orthodoxy. They still believe in the virgin birth. They still believe in Jesus Christ's death and burial and resurrection. But he goes on and he says, I've not found thy works perfect before God. Well, Bible students know that perfect doesn't mean without sin. Perfect means complete. Perfect means whole. That their works haven't been completed because there was something lacking. And I think the thing that was lacking was genuine faith to continue to walk with the Lord. James chapter 2 describes a scenario that I think is very applicable, starting in verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, can I maybe just add, or suffering persecution or torture or hiding out, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful for the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is what? Dead. Being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain, selfish man, that faith without works is dead? We're not going to look at it, but if you took the time to look at the first 13 verses of this chapter that lead up to this passage I just read in James chapter 2. What you'll find is it's that story where James is teaching the people, basically saying, hey, there's, there's a problem in your church where people are showing partiality to those who are rich. Somebody comes into your congregation and, and they're dressed well, they have nice clothes, they're obviously very affluent. And you're going to bring them down and put them in the very best seats and you're going to treat them different and you're going to show partiality to certain people. And I think the implied understanding is because you think there's more in it for you if you tip your cap to certain people who can somehow pay you back. And he rebukes that idea. Well, isn't it interesting that here in Sardis, Listen, don't, don't misunderstand me. The believers at this time of history, they were literally between a rock and a hard place. They were living ridiculous odds, terrible things. But man, are they going to take a stand against the Roman system? 
Or are they going to tip their cap to it and show some deference and make compromises so that they receive some level of temporal reward? The Lord simply says, your works aren't perfect. They're not perfect. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. We've kind of got the line on what that means spiritually, right? Spiritual harlotry, fooling around, playing the field, right? Trading in Jesus for something else. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And playing around and playing around and just, you know, one little compromise here and one little compromise there and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And before you know it, you're a true believer, but you're, you're squarely planted in the midst of a false counterfeit church system. And before the Lord, you have a name that you live, but really you're dead. Really you're dead. There's an appearance of life, but there's no real vibrant Christian life on display anymore, like a lamp that has gone out. In fact, a good illustration would be like a star in the sky. So the stars in the sky, they tell us, are so far away, they can't even measure how far away they are. They have to come up with this term called light years, the distance light travels in a year. And some of the stars are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of light years away. That's how far away these stars are. So you look up in the sky, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Well, let's just say one of those stars burns out and dies today. Today, that star is dead. But that light is still coming, right? And for thousands of years, you're still going to see the light of that star thinking that it's still burning thinking that it's still alive. But in reality, it's dead. That's kind of the picture. It's not unlike a lot of traditional, denominational Protestant churches today. Churches like many, certainly not all, Lutheran churches, Methodist churches, a lot of churches that once upon a time absolutely had the truth of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but today... So many don't even teach salvation by grace through faith anymore. They add an element of works. That is an entirely different thing. So they have a name that they live, but really they're dead. Really they're dead. They're actually a whole lot more Catholic in their doctrines and their practices. So letter A, Jesus has some counsel. Of course he has counsel for his children. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain. There's five things, literally. We'll go through them quickly. The first thing is to watch. That's what he wants us to do, to watch. Luke chapter 12. Notice the cross-reference. 35. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. That when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird, he, Jesus, will gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. He's going to serve those that anticipated his coming. And if he shall come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched 
and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. You might want to just make the application of 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you, behave you like men. Be strong. And so the next thing he admonishes them to, be watchful and strengthen. Strengthen the things that remain. Well, what, those, what might those things be? Well, let's look at Luke twenty two thirty one 31 and see if this might apply. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. You imagine the believers in Sardis might have felt a little bit like Simon Peter. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, when you get your legs under you, when you find your faith again, Simon, strengthen thy brethren. Strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen the brethren, the few names that remain in Sardis. You say, man, I, I don't have any strength to give. Well, you're in good company. Paul felt that way. 2 Timothy 4, 17, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, literally the devil himself. Peter refers to it this way in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Notice, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Lacking strength, well, it's natural, but you know how you're going to get it? You're going to endure trials. You're going to endure suffering. You're going to trust him for faith. That's what you're going to do. Then he says, remember. Let's go to John 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus says, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Sardis knows it hated them, right? If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Hey, Sardis, remember this. Verse 20, remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they'll keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, not for yours, because they know not him that sent me. Can you imagine if they would just apply this counsel? Hold fast. It's the next one. Hold fast is the same thing we saw um, in Thyatira in verse 25. Hang on tight. Don't let go. Hebrews 4.14. See then that we have a great high priest that is passed under the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. The faith. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, don't recant. Don't give in. Don't say you don't believe what you believe anymore. Hold fast. And lastly, repent. Well, that's obvious. Turn. Change. Get back on track with God. Hey, church. Any of this resonate with you? Have you, find yourself, have you found yourself creeping slowly into compromise? Slowly just getting along with the world? 
relinquishing a little bit of your testimony, not standing for things that are true, just go along to get along? Are you feeling the pressures, you young people, of your friends, of your schoolmates, of the people in your social um, groups that just put pressure on you because it's square, it's not cool, man, to walk with the Lord and do what's right. What's cool is to rebel. What's cool is to fight. What's cool is to argue. What's cool is to do those things. Are you feeling that pressure? Hey, listen, the Lord has an answer for you. Do these things. Because if not, there's a warning, and that's letter B. If thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come on thee. In other words, of course he's going to come as a thief. He's going to come by surprise, right? So we're to watch. We're to consistently be aware of God's presence and his soon return. Because he will return, and he will judge, and he will make everything right. And when he does, you want him to find you faithfully watching and waiting. That's what he says in Luke 18, 6 through 8. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Could you see how Sardis fits into that context? crying day and night unto the Lord, even though the, the answers aren't coming swiftly? Here's his word. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. That's God's job, y'all. He will avenge them. What's our job? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Will he find you faithfully standing and watching and anticipating his return? Well, some people did, and that's point number four, the church's celebration. The church's celebration. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis. I love the way that's written. It had to have been hard, y'all. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy not everybody was just rolling over to the social pressure. Some people were choosing to stand. So what are these garments they have not defiled? Well, your garments, that's your testimony. Your garments, you know. I chose what I thought were nice garments today. I wanted to look nice before y'all. Whether you agree or you don't, this was my choice. Y'all chose your garments today, and thank God you did. Um... You choose what you put on you, not just to stay warm when it's cold. Many people choose to put on what they put on because they think it looks nice. And it is your, it is your testimony. It is your display. It's how you are representing yourself to others who are watching you, right? It's what you put on display. Romans 13, 14 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So there's a few in Sardis who didn't defile their garments, which means there were many who did. They blew their testimony by living according to their own fleshly desires. So many defile and others don't. And what's the difference? How do we know the difference? Well, it says they walked with Jesus in white in pureness, in, in holiness. For example, 1 John chapter 1, verse number 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. That means what we said is incorrect. We lie. What did we just say? We just said we have fellowship with Jesus. You living in sin and you say you have fellowship with Jesus? God said you're a liar because what you said is not accurate. You only have fellowship with Jesus when you walk with Jesus and Jesus only walks in the light. You can't walk in darkness and have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Don't kid yourself. But, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Let me just briefly introduce you to three names, famous as they may be, that did not defile their garments in Sardis. John Wycliffe, 1320 to 1384, referred to as, this is important, the morning star of the Reformation. John Wycliffe is, is a full 150 years, 100 to 150 years before the official Protestant Reformation when Wycliffe shows up. Uh, do yourself a favor and spend a little time reading about John Wycliffe and the others. He's a theologian. He was a seminary professor. He was a reformer. But most notably, he was a translator. He started way before anybody else. So on the British continent and in the Isles, he was most famous for his translation of the Bible into English, which was the language of the people in 1382. Sometimes he's criticized because his translation came from Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which would not have been the text that would have been the preferred text. But hey, what did he have available? I mean, at the end of the day, he was the first real voice that stood up and actually did something about it to get the scriptures into the hands of the people, imperfect as they may have been. Some things that John Wycliffe believed and wrote about. Only scripture is authoritative. Not the popes, not the clergy, not the traditions. There's no biblical basis whatsoever for the papacy. The true church is made up of voluntary believers in Jesus Christ. The invisible church as opposed to the visible, Catholic, required church. He said there's no such thing as purgatory, celibacy of the priests, that's a myth, selling indulgences, praying to saints. And he did all of this a hundred years before the reformers of the Protestant Reformation ever showed up. He is the morning star. He is the first one to begin to shine light out over the horizon before the sun actually rises. His followers were a group of people called Lollards, pre-Reformation solid believers. After his death, in 1415, the Catholic Church officially declared him a heretic. Go figure. His writings greatly influenced the next guy, properly pronounced Jan Hus. We might say John Hus. 1369 to 1415. John Hus was a priest uh, in in the Czech Republic, sometimes called the first real church reformer. His work influenced a lot of other reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and others. Among the things that, that Hus believed, uh, he attacked the moral failings of the priests and the popes. He was against the idea of the Eucharist and transubstantiation of the host, bread, and the wine. 
He was against the indulgences and, and the selling of favors. He was against the ecclesiastical violence, in other words, the crusades. In the name of the Holy Church, they're killing people, and he stood against those things. His followers are called Hussites. Most of the true believers were just labeled after the guy they followed. They then rolled into other groups that became known as the United Brethren, and eventually in that area of Moravia, the Moravians. The Moravians ought to be of interest to you because Moravian missionaries settled here in this area of Ohio. The Moravian missionaries are an amazing character study of people. They came to try and win the Native Americans in this area. Trumpet in the land, ever heard of that? That's the story of Moravian missionaries ultimately giving their life, trying to reach Native Americans with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Moravian churches, by the way, still exist, and they exist in our area. They exist in many areas, but many of them, not all, many of them have left biblical orthodoxy. So they would fall into the category, like Sardis, that they have a name that they live. But many are dead. At the time of Jan Hus, the Catholic Church is losing its strength over the people. In 1408, there was a, a schism in the office of the Pope. There were two popes at the same time, Gregory Twelfth and Benedict Thirteenth. Each claimed the office, the papacy, and each claimed the other guy was the Antichrist. <laughs> and if ever a Baptist preacher was going to amen a pope, this would be the place. And while that was going on, in 1409, there was a third guy, <laughs> Alexander V. So he became the third pope all at the same time. And the first two called him the anti-pope. Whatever. Hus was asked to recant his beliefs, because that's what they did back then, and he refused. He was captured, and he was burned at the stake. Uh, we have a photo he has a statue in honor of his work in the Old Town Square in Prague. If you go, we have missionaries in Prague. If you ever go, you'll see this statue. He's greatly honored in the Czech Republic. That's Jan Hus. Uh, not so much today by the atheistic Czechs as much as he's honored for political reform and freedom from the political oppression of the major part of Europe. Nevertheless, you can see it, it is still pretty cool to go to a city in Europe and see one of the greatest men who stood for the Lord in the hardest times still being honored with a massive statue in the Old Town Square. The last name, Girolamo Savonarola. This guy was a Catholic. Uh, again, I've said before, I'm going to say it again. This is not intended to be a bash on Catholics. There, was a lot of, there were a lot of born-again people in the system of the Catholic Church. They had their struggles. We are talking about, when we talk about the Catholic Church, a system set up by the devil to deceive. There's a lot, listen, the, the, the Catholic Church has real believers in it, but not because they believe what they teach. They became believers at some point. So this man was a Dominican friar, and he was a preacher in Florence, Italy. What did he believe? He denounced the clerical corruption, dictatorial rule, and exploiting of the poor. He defied the Pope's ban on preaching. The Pope banned preaching. <laughs> he said, no, I'm not doing it. And, and he was invited to go meet the Pope in Rome, and he said, I'm not doing that either. His message was primarily personal repentance and reform, and ultimately he was condemned, hanged, and burned. 
There was a bunch of others who have names, like I said, that you might not recognize. Albigenses, Waldenses, Lollards, Bogomiles. These are God's remnant. These are people you wouldn't recognize, but these are people who stood for the Lord and for His Word at a time when it wasn't popular. It says in verse 4, For they are worthy. They are worthy. They earned their rewards. Hebrews 11, 37 and 38, describing people who were butchered. It says of them, the world was not worthy of those guys. But these guys are worthy of their rewards because their works showed forth their faith. And here are the rewards. We'll finish them quickly and we're done. Number one, righteousness. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Defined for you in Revelation 19, 8. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. It's not the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're in heaven because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have robes of righteousness because of your righteousness that you displayed. So the earned reward that they are worthy of receiving, they are clothed in white. Now, I I have to think that the faithful of Sardis, maybe they didn't feel like they did much. They were probably frustrated thinking that there was little, if any, visible lasting fruit. But they stood. This was their lifestyle, and they're rewarded for it. Number two, reassurance. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. The people at this time lived in constant fear for their lives. The state church pronounced them as heretics and pronounced curses over them. The overwhelming drift of the society was against them. They likely doubted whether or not they were actually saved and doing the right things. But yet they believed. They had the right attitude, and Jesus Christ gives them the reassurance, don't fear, your names will never be blotted out of the book of life. And thirdly, reciprocation. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Since many of this time stood and boldly proclaimed the truth of God in opposition to the state powers, Jesus has a promise that he has to keep to them. Found in Matthew 10, 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. They opened their mouths and they spoke. They had a ministry. And Jesus says, I'll confess your name before my Father. Listen, how can I apply this to my life today? The Lord wants the church to hear what the Spirit is trying to say to you. As individuals before the Lord, do you feel today as though you're overwhelmed with trouble that's coming on you from the outside? Do you feel pressure to conform to the world? Do you feel like Others have some level of power over you. Please remember that only Jesus has ultimate power. He is always with you. He's saying to you, I have got this. Just trust him. So whether it's your eternal soul, maybe you've never known that you've known that you're saved and you want to be. Trust him. Maybe you know that you're saved, but you haven't really walked with him. Trust him. He will get you through. You don't want to recant now. You don't want to be the guy who caves now and then find out day after tomorrow he returns. That's going to happen to somebody. 
He has not put anything on you that he has not promised that you can handle with faith in him. So let's exercise that faith. Let's pray.